I should start with a correction that I received from Mr. Hamster after Sunday school, especially for young guys with fast cars. I made the comment that you're invincible until God, God's work for you is done. And he mentioned, well, what about guys driving 200 with their eyes closed? And I would just say, see to it that the way by which your days are not numbered is you being an idiot. <laughs> I meant doing something fruitful, like kingdom work. All right, we are continuing on in our Matthew series. So uh, turn in Matthew uh, to chapter 12. And today we're going to look at the verses between 38 and 42. So once you're there, then I'll ask as, uh, that we stand for the reading of God's inspired word. And let's keep in mind when we do this, I'll mention it later, that the routine handling of holy things is a scary thing because it starts to feel common or profane. But let's remember when we're reading, these are the words of God as though God was right here speaking them to us. These are the words of God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of Sheba, or the, the queen of the south, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So as we've been working through here, trying to break this down in bite-sized pieces, it's sometimes important to reconnect with where we're at in the story, uh, and that our familiarity with the text doesn't become something that actually hinders us from seeing things. We want to see uh, these scriptures with new eyes, and when I talk about new eyes, I don't mean find a novel interpretation that no one in the church has ever heard of before. Uh, that's not what I mean. But with new eyes, I mean that your eyes are new, that your eyes are being renewed, and that you're able to see things in the scriptures that have been there all along, but perhaps because of familiarity, we miss them. And the, where we're at in the story here is this growing intensification of the struggle and the conflict between Christ and the Pharisees, the, the rulers or the leaders in Jerusalem. There's more and more friction. And I'm wondering, if we were reading this story for the first time, if you've never read your Bible, you didn't grow up in a Christian home, and you're just reading this gospel, by now you're probably wondering, I wonder how this is going to go. There's a lot of fumes in this room, and it looks like somebody's about to light a match here. And this is going to go really bad really soon. And I hope you see that, because that is indeed what is happening. And I think it's good to do a 30,000-foot review of some of the things Jesus has been involved with in the Gospel of Matthew so far, so that we can put today's passage in context. So we started uh, in this series about a year ago, and let's look at what Jesus has done in that time. Jesus has gathered his 12 together. He has sent them out preaching a message of repentance. He has pronounced a curse on the cities that will not repent. He has had a run-in with the Pharisees over the meaning of the Sabbath. Now we're in very recent uh, portions. He has performed miracles and been accused in being on the side of Satan. 
He has warned the Pharisees of their hard hearts, and he has warned them to not cross over a line from which they will never find forgiveness. And this last week, we saw Christ explaining that the Pharisees' words were wicked because their hearts were rotten. They were bearing rotten fruit because they were rotten men on the inside to the core. And so you can imagine how these men reacted to this open confrontation and complete lack of respect that Christ is showing them. Again, these, were, these are guys that wore nice clothes and had money enough to buy books and were respected in the marketplace. And Jesus is not showing them the respect that they are accustomed to. And so eventually Christ will pay the ultimate price for this. And many of his ministers since find themselves in the same kind of pattern. We're in Reformation Month. Uh, the end of October is Reformation Day. And so we might remember some of these brave heroes of the faith that have gone after Christ and found themselves in similarly hot water. Men like Jan Hus, men like Wycliffe and Luther, who are willing to defy popes, princes, and bishops when the word of God was at stake. One of my personal favorites, John Knox, who was a galley slave and actually a former bodyguard for uh, another Scottish minister by the name of George Wishart, finally became a minister, and he never preached without his broadsword at his side. This was a preacher who was packing heat, the heat of the day, when he preached. And he thundered against Queen Mary, even making her cry at times because of the intense fear and the intense hatred she had for John Knox. One of my... Uh, another favorite stories that I've, I don't think I've ever told here, I love historical anecdotes, as you know, is uh, some would say the greatest preacher ever to be born on North American soil is a man by the name of Samuel Davies, who probably not enough of us have heard of. Uh, and his name got so famous that George II said, I want to pay for this guy to come and preach to me. So he climbs aboard his boat and he sails off to England to go preach before King George II. And he's preaching in the king's court and the king and a few others are whispering, hey, this guy's pretty good. He's really... And Samuel Davies told the king, he looked at him and he says, Whoa. Silence. When lions roar, the beasts of the forest all tremble. And when King Jesus speaks, the princes of the earth should keep their mouths shut. All right. Preacher just told the king what to do. And actually, King George was impressed by it. That, that actually endeared him more to Samuel Davies. Like, yeah, no, he's got a point. Right? But this is the kind of boldness that frequently gets God's servants in hot water. And here the Pharisees are agitated and trying to turn the momentum and the focus of the conversation off of themselves and back onto Jesus. And this is a common tactic when we're under pressure. A desire to change the topic is a common symptom of those who know that their sin has found them out. Think of Jesus and the adulterous woman at the well. Right? She's clearly caught in her sin and she suddenly wants to have a, a pretty detailed conversation about the proper worship. You know, which mountain should we be on? And what? Whoa, whoa, woman. You're missing the point here. That's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about you, right? Uh, in my own experience, I've had people that want to discuss the very fine points of theology when what we really need to discuss is how their sin is harming themselves and others around them. And the Pharisees are tired of being on the witness stand. Jesus has put them on the defensive and they're trying to get back on the offense. They're trying to get their best to get Jesus back in the witness stand. And one of Jesus' most effective, and for his opponents, most frustrating tactics is that he never takes the bait. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus never takes the bait. He's always in control. He's always controlling the flow of the conversation. And he uses his opponent's momentum against them. 
So Jesus always stays on the offense, and this is, in fact, one of the reasons why he's so frustrating to his enemies. And here, he finds them asking for a sign. In verse 38 and 39, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So at this point, Christ has resisted Satan's temptation during an extended fast. Remember that? He has cleansed a leper. He has remotely healed a centurion's servant. He's cast out demons. He's calmed a a storm at the sea. He has healed a paralytic. He has raised a young girl back to life. He has healed two blind men as well as a mute man. He has healed a man with a withered hand. And now in the most recent exchange, he has cast out a demon from a man who was blind and mute. These guys watch this. So naturally, the next step is for them to say, well, would you do a sign so we know it's you? Right? What? Did they not just see everything that's happened? Why would they ask for another sign when all the signs they've been given uh, have been met with their unbelief and their opposition to Christ? Why would you think one more is going to somehow seal the deal? It won't. So Christ is obviously not opposed to performing signs out of compassion for the needy. And these miracles are frequently called signs because they signify the validity of Christ's ministry. They signify who he is, and that is why they are sometimes called signs. And so what Christ is unwilling to do, here in other cases, is to turn his miracles into some kind of traveling road show. This isn't a circus. This isn't performance art. These are signs to point to the Messiah. And he is especially will, unwilling to do it for those who come to him in arrogant pride rather than in humble faith. So the constant demand to put a greater and greater burden of proof on God in order to believe is itself a symptom of the sin that is deeply lodged in our hearts. And to make application here, we frequently ask for signs in our own time. Uh, There's there's a story that I I love of one popular pastor who kept meeting, uh, meeting for coffee with a young man from his church who had gone off to college. And when he comes back, he... Now, he's, of course, he's one year into university. Who could be more erudite and well-learned than someone who's one year into a university program? So he's got all these very complex questions about the faith and how Christianity just doesn't make sense to his advanced knowledge and his superior wisdom. And Tim Keller, the pastor in the story, keeps answering the objections one after the other, one after the other, one after the other, and satisfactory, seemingly. And these objections keep coming up. And I think this is a stroke of genius. Tim Keller says, okay, you've got all these objections. I'm answering them satisfactorily, and you keep coming. So here's the real problem. What's the name of the girl you're sleeping with? That's the problem. You don't have an intellectual problem. You have a heart problem. You have a moral problem, and you're hiding, asking for more and more proof to be piled up, when no matter how much proof I would provide you, you would not believe. The same kind of thing happened in a debate between... Uh, a leading atheist and a leading Christian apologist in the 1990s, and the, the atheist said, well, if, if God is real, get your podium to go up to the ceiling and come back down, then I'll believe. And again, the Christian apologist said, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You came in here presupposing that miracles are impossible, so anytime you see something, you're going to interpret it that way. That would not convince you. You're going to come up with some kind of naturalistic explanation for the air pressure or something, uh, 
because your presuppositions are opposed to God. You will not believe even if he would give you a sign. And it's no different today. These Pharisees just saw a blind and a mute man made to speak and see. And they came up not with the right conclusion. What did they conclude when they saw that? This guy must be satanic. He must be in league with Satan. Okay? These past signs hardened them in their unbelief rather than softened them towards belief. So why would Christ give them another one when they are dedicated to unbelief? So Christ is refusing to play on their terms and he refuses them another miracle. And he even rebukes them quite sharply for their request. Again, these Pharisees are the respected cultural leaders of the day. And Christ calls them and their generation evil and adulterous for asking for a sign. These men should have been convinced by the scriptures alone that Jesus is the Christ. From the moment of the conception onward, Jesus has followed the biblical and prophetic template perfectly, and they do not believe. He has shown himself repeatedly to be the true Israel, and the pattern of his ministry has followed perfectly along Israel's steps, from the, 40, the time of 40, testing out in the desert, to the sermons that he's preaching, he's perfectly being the obedient son that has always been promised, and these guys refuse to see it. He's been heralded by his cousin, John the Baptist, and they don't listen to him. And remember, these are the guys who are reading their Bibles more than anyone. Most people didn't even have the scriptures. These guys were supposed to be familiar with their scriptures. And not only that, but they have in-person human contact with Jesus. And they still don't get it. So what kind of a hardness are we dealing with here? And this is why I say that we need to always be on guard with all the blessings that we have been given to remember that nothing is as dangerous as the routine handling of sacred things. When you read your Bible every day as you should, be amazed, be thankful that God has put his holy word into your hands. Don't treat it as just one more profane thing. These are the words of God. Don't start to take it for granted. Don't start to glaze over. Don't, don't start seeing or refusing to see things that are clearly there. And we do, as people, seemingly get bored with scripture. And then we start to prioritize other things to start stimulating our imagination. In Luke 16, for example, on the account of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man pleads for his brothers. And what's Abram's response when the rich man wants to send his brothers a sign so that they'll repent? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abram, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Moses and the prophets here is a stand-in for the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Okay? If these guys will not see what's going on in the Old Testament, they will not believe it if your brother comes back from the dead. They won't. They won't because they are dedicated to unbelief. They are dedicated to being the masters of their own lives. They will not believe it. So I'm not going to waste... Uh, a miracle. I'm not going to throw pearls to swine here because you people will not believe. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul exhorts the church to not fall into this trap by playing by the opponent's rules either. In a well-known passage here, Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Paul understood his people well. And Greeks seek wisdom. He understood the Greeks well. One wants evidence, the other wants philosophy. And Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's where the power is. The power is in the gospel. Christ crucified. And this is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Does it ever strike you as silly that for 2,000 years the church has, or at least should have been, preaching the same gospel over and over again? Okay? And our doctrine doesn't change, at least it shouldn't, and we keep doing it over and over again. That's because that's the wisdom of God. It seems silly to us that we need to keep doing this 2,000 years later, but we do, because we're forgetful people. We need to get this into our bones. And even still, even in the church, many people have lost confidence in the bold proclamation of Scripture. I remember a number of years ago going to a Christian education seminar at a local seminary, broadly evangelical seminary, and the first thing I was told was that preaching needs to be discarded. People don't learn that way anymore. Okay, people don't have the attention span, blah, blah, and all these reasons why we need to do away with preaching. What does Paul say? Preaching is the wisdom of God. It may seem crazy to you. All your humanity studies say not to do this. Paul says, keep doing it. Jesus says, keep feeding my sheep. Okay? This is where the power is, is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these Pharisees are so close, in one sense, to both the scriptures and to Jesus Christ, yet they cannot see it. Their proximity is not saving them. It's not helping them, evidently. And again, how many of us have grown up in the church and should trust the Bible as the sufficient word of God? and yet remained imprisoned on the treadmill of personal experience before they'll really believe that they have intimacy with Christ? Or how many people keep beating themselves up for past sins, wondering if they can actually be forgiven? When the Bible says, if you draw near to Christ, it, your sin is gone. It's gone. Okay? You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to go through a, a period of uh, penance. You repent of your sin, it's gone. The Bible said so. You don't need some kind of ecstatic experience to know that you have intimacy with Jesus Christ. The Bible says so. Okay? We don't need to put God to the test. We don't need to demand signs when his word tells us what the reality is. So how many of us are not chasing signs, but maybe we're trusting our theological knowledge? Maybe you can win a Bible trivia contest. Maybe you can name all the prophets in order. Maybe you can handle yourself pretty well in a theology debate. But like the Pharisees, refuse to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. I hope that's no one here this morning. Because remember, this exchange is happening right on, the field, right on the feet, right on the heels of a portion about a tree and a fruit. Okay? And that's what Jesus is getting at here. What's inside of you? What's inside of you? Okay? And to bring this to our times here again. I really don't care how fine-tuned your eschatology is. If you're being an idiot and having one drink too many at the bonfire, I don't care. Because there's something wrong inside of you. So let's not go into a theology debate and try to avoid the problem in your heart. 
I don't care if your theology is so pure that Calvin isn't a good enough Calvinist for you. If you're not guarding zealously your girlfriend's sexuality and preserving it for marriage. I don't care if your doctrine of Scripture is superior to the charismatics, if the charismatics are the one honoring their father and mother and you're not. Okay? I don't care. What's in you? What's in your heart? I don't care if you have the right last name and come from seven generations nonstop of church elders and musicians. If you personally refuse to bend the knee to King Jesus and are living like the world, your proximity will not save you. If you're holding out on submitting to Christ because your pastor isn't interesting enough or we don't have the right kind of music or your parents didn't teach you well enough or your Christian friends aren't nice enough or your church isn't whatever enough or your kids are making you too busy to read your Bible and come to church or whatever excuse you keep on coming up with, you're just like the Pharisees. You're just like them. You're asking for another sign when God has given you all you need. He's given you all you need. The only reason you're waiting for all the conditions to be right is because your heart is proud and pharisaical. You're trying to make an excuse for your unbelief and you know you don't have one. That's why we hide the same way people in the Bible hide. And so these things can mark any generation, including ours, but Jesus is living and speaking to those in his generation in the first instance. So these are the ones who are seeing him in the flesh after all. These are the ones who are witnessing his miracles. And as the gospel of Matthew goes along, this confrontation is going to keep building and building and building until Jesus finally, towards the end of the gospel, starts to call Deuteronomic curses down on these people. And you know what the amazing thing is? In Matthew 27, 25, they said, yes, let his blood be on us and on our children. Wow. Wow. That hardness just got pretty permanent because they're going to face it very soon. And the very people whom God has especially blessed with his covenants and with the giving of scripture are moving closer and closer and closer to formally rejecting their Messiah. They are an adulterous generation because they have been unfaithful to the terms God has given them. And they are marching towards a formal rejection of Jesus Christ. And Christ is unwilling to perform a miracle on demand for them, but he does let them know that there is one more thing you will see. This generation, to us we'd say that generation, you are going to see one more thing yet. You're going to see the sign of Jonah. And it's going to be very interesting at that point if you guys are going to understand the story you're in, or if you won't. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Christ is clearly making typological connections between himself and Jonah. And again, if you're The concept of typology is new to you. Typology is a kind of foreshadowing. It's a kind of prophecy, but it's like a live action prophecy. It's not prophecy so much with words as it is prophecy in the form of people, places, and things, events. Typology insists on the literal, true history of the Old Testament, but it shows how these literal people, places, and things are symbolic of something bigger. Typology moves us from shadows and promises to fulfillment. It moves us from fact to meaning. And that's an important step, to get from facts to meaning. 
These types are fulfilled, perfected, and ultimately terminated in Christ. And this is why Christ succeeds where all the old types and shadows ultimately fail and are going to let us down. And this is why we claim, and sometimes in the form of a song that we sing here sometimes, this is why we say that Christ is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better David. And here Jesus is telling us in his own words, he is also the true and better Jonah. Jesus makes the most obvious connection to how Jonah is a typological Christ figure because he spends three days and three nights buried in the belly of the earth. Jonah was called, as you recall, many of us have learned the story as children. So you'll recall that Jonah was called to preach to a rebellious and wicked people. And what does he do? He runs in the exact opposite direction than the one God had called him in. The better Jonah, Christ, rushes right in when he is called to preach to a rebellious and stiff-necked people. And like Jesus, in Matthew chapter 8, Jonah faces a mighty storm out on the sea. And in the Bible, the anger of the sea is frequently used as a model or as a picture of God's anger and God's wrath, which is why Revelation says the sea will be no more. Okay? God's anger will be no more. Jonah offers to be thrown overboard and to give his life in order to calm a storm. And this itself helps intensify the picture of what's happening here. This is a picture of substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, who also offers his life to be thrown headfirst into the judgment and the wrath of God in order to spare the lives of others around him. And so like Christ, who descends into Sheol or Hades, so we get a picture of this in Jonah chapter 2. Why don't you turn to Jonah chapter 2 with me? And as you read this, this is true in the first instance of Jonah. But because Christ is saying he's the greater Jonah, as we read this, let's put these words in the mouth of Jesus Christ. The greater Jonah. As he struggles in his dying hours on Calvary. I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. You see the violence of this picture. And then you remember Christ with his hair being pulled out by the handful, and being spit on, and being lashed so his back is just ribbons of open flesh the scourging and the mocking. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. One of the first signs of the curse in our parents is that weeds would corrupt the garden and make their life difficult. And Jesus Christ very literally takes that curse upon his head with the crown of thorns. He is taking that curse on himself at the cross. And here the lesser Jonah has his head wrapped with those same cursed weeds as he goes into the belly of the sea. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up My life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land, just like the tomb vomits Christ out once he's conquered death. Some commentators have looked at the language here and suggested that Jonah may have actually died a physical death and was resurrected. But even if that's not the case, at the very least, he goes down and he dies a typological death and resurrection story. Unless we think that the fish was just an object of punishment or an instrument of punishment, we need to remember it was the water that killed Jonah. The fish was safe passage back to the land of the living. And I want to suggest that the tomb of Christ, as cursed and as covered in wickedness from a human standpoint as it was, is also the instrument that brings Christ back to the land of the living. The death of Christ is just as much the instrument as, of new life as it was an instrument of judgment. The sea of God's white-hot anger had to receive a substitute in order to be calmed. And because God receives and he accepts this substitute, he is vindicated when death itself can no longer contain Christ and it must vomit him back up to the shores of the living, him having conquered the curse. And at the end of verse 41, Jesus says that the greater Jonah is standing right of these Pharisees, right in front of them. And he is about to be vindicated with his resurrection after being in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And it goes on here. Verse 42 says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And this is a reference to 1 Kings 10, where the queen of Sheba, quite possibly from roughly modern-day Ethiopia, comes to see and hear Solomon in person after hearing about his fame. And interestingly, Solomon's main contribution to Scripture is the book of Proverbs, where wisdom is often portrayed as a person, and most notably a woman. And Solomon, like Jonah, is quite clearly a type of Christ, Solomon is the son of a great king. He is the heir to the throne. He possesses great wisdom. But like Jonah, Solomon is also a failed Christ figure in that he does not follow his own counsel. He warns his son about seductive women who will pull him off the path of wisdom, and yet Solomon himself is pulled off the path of wisdom by being seduced by empty sexual promises. And so as promising as Solomon looks at the start, He too lets us down and leaves us waiting and wanting for one wiser than him who will not let us down. But in both of these accounts, Kelvin notes something very important here about both Jonah and Solomon. Both of them in this account are ministering to foreigners. Jonah is called to the Ninevites who are strangers to the covenant. And Nineveh, for contemporary people who think in terms of maps, is roughly where Mosul, Iraq is. And the hostility that we continue to see in that portion of the world was raging back then as well. Ishmael and Isaac are not done fighting yet. And this is why Jonah wanted to resist the call to go evangelize those savages, those people. And the animosity from one group to another was very clear and strong. And then we have a southern queen, also an outsider to the people of God. 
also a stranger to the covenant and to, to the scriptures. But she makes a journey at her own cost to go see this great king and seek him out. And look at the contrast that this is going to set up. You have outsiders to the covenant, Ninevites and an African queen responding positively and then repenting at the preaching of lesser Christ figures. And now you have the actual Christ, the real Christ, the God-man, the better Jonah, the better Solomon coming to his own people who have been safeguarded with the covenants, with the scriptures for generations. And what do they do? No thank you, Satan. They reject their Messiah. And no wonder that Jesus says that the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba from the south are going to rise up in judgment against these people and condemn them. You have lesser people who respond positively to lesser light. And I would say they do have every right to condemn to the uttermost greater people who are sinning against greater light and stubbornly refuse to bend the knee. As an aside, this isn't the main purpose here, but we live in an age where many great scholars are confounded whether Jonah is a real person or not. I'll make it real simple. Yes. Okay? It's a real story. Two reasons. One, everything about the context makes it sound like it's a real story when you read it the first time. And secondly, Jesus is saying these people are going to be back at the resurrection. Okay? These people that Jonah preached to are going to be there. This actually happened. Okay, this actually happened. Those people are going to condemn the Pharisees at the resurrection. Those people are going to condemn people who are sinning against a greater light. Jesus certainly sees Jonah as a historical figure. So to summarize all this, what is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is that God's messenger is commanded to go preach a message of repentance And after an intense three-day war against death in the heart of the earth, he will rise up and preach to outsiders who are far away from God. And amazingly, these outsiders are going to respond in humble faith, shaming those who are close by, but who stubbornly refuse to receive their Lord. That's the sign of Jonah. And I think it has application for us today. There is a real redemptive historical consequence for understanding the context. There always is. We always need to understand the context first. But we always need to apply once we understand what's happening. And so the fact that we have Jewish leaders who so clearly reject the Messiah gives significance to the curses that Jesus is going to start calling down in the subsequent chapters. The nature of that generation, the one that Jesus says this generation, the one he's talking to, does provide uh, context and helpful things uh, to put a theological understanding of events that are very soon about to take place to those people. But all of that must be understood in the proper place in the big story of redemption. In Romans 11, Paul talks about what seems to be a large-scale conversion of the Jewish people back to the gospel. And I think this also fits with what we're seeing here. So even, all, even though all their leaders have clearly cut themselves off from the gospel at the time of Christ's first coming, it seems in Romans that there's going to be a widespread acceptance of the gospel among these people by the time of his second coming. And the logic that Paul uses in Romans is this. Israel is cut off because of her hardness of heart. That's what we're seeing right here. Israel is cut off because she is hard. They reject their Messiah. The Pharisees are opposed to Jesus. And this provides an opportunity for God to graft the Gentiles into his family. And this, according to the logic of Romans 11, means that the Jews will be provoked and come back in because they see Gentiles coming in. They're provoked to come back to the Lord. 
And so the logic in the case of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba is similar. God is grafting an outsider so that he can put his mercy on display to these unlikely converts so that he can show his covenant dealing is not about ethnicity or birthright, but about union with Christ. And this is going to provoke these nearby people to come back in time. But put this way, I don't think it should be hard for us to make application for ourselves today. Some people still might have the mistaken notion that inheriting the kingdom or that union with Christ is a birthright or that it comes by some kind of modern Christian ethnicity instead of by genuine personal faith in Jesus Christ. And these people make the same error as the Pharisees. Being born into a Christian home or being baptized or being a member of a good church will not ensure your citizenship in the kingdom. And we can and we must be thankful for all those things if we've been given them. And as parents, I would suggest we have an obligation to provide those opportunities to our children. And God does often work through families and that kind of intergenerational blessing and communities. And that is true and good and wonderful. But friends, the line into the kingdom of heaven is single file. It's one by one. One by one salvation. Okay? Yes, God saves a people. But you know how he saves them? Smith and then Murphy and then Plett. Okay? That's how he saves them. One by one. You will not get in on your grandparents' coats. God does not have grandchildren. God has children who are adopted in through the gospel and no other way. No other way. So if you're here this morning and you think that you're in union with Christ because you're here or because you have a particularly good last name or because your church attendance record is better than some or because your advanced Bible knowledge, you are making the exact same error as the Pharisees. And so if we're going to put this whole extended passage together, what we have in our own context is a picture of church people who are content to separate head and heart, root and fruit, and assume that they have peace with God because of their knowledge or maybe because they've rejected knowledge or whatever man-centered thing they've decided to do makes them feel especially spiritual. But Jesus says all your assumptions need to be laid bare. I tried to think of a modern-day equivalent. What would it feel like for the Israelites, for Jonah, to go watch the Ninevites repent. And I think of some of our own Christless Christianity and our Christless conservatism that has often crept into the church. Okay? And we sometimes, and I think we have permission to do this, poke fun at the enemies of God. And there's a place for that. But what if that blue-haired feminist that's raging someday comes to understand the gospel? And she's pointing her finger at you and your Christless conservatism as Jesus Christ says, get away from me, I never knew you. And this former enemy of God who was very clearly far away from the kingdom, very far away from the Lord, actually repents. And she tells Christian kids from Christian families, ha ha, okay, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. And that should do a few things. That should humble us. That should also make us a little cautious Okay? Making fun of unbelief, making fun of unbelieving ideas is a biblical tactic. But let's keep in mind, prostitutes sometimes enter the kingdom before the leaders do. Okay? That happens. That's what Jesus is saying here. Okay? Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you people are. And you've had the Bible your whole life. What's your problem? 
Imagine the Ninevite converts or the Queen of Sheba walking in here today. Okay, let's try to frame this in a positive light. Rather than just seeing lesser people with lesser light converting and, and greater people with greater light unbelieving, what if we would turn this positively? What if we'd say this group of people has especially great light? Many of us come from Christian homes. Many of us know the Bible. Okay, many of us are here hearing the word this morning. What if we would turn with greater repentance and greater humility to the greater light? What could we do in that case? Okay, imagine the Queen of Sheba in her relative ignorance walking in here, seeing the Ninevites walking in here, and they see that we worship the risen Christ every Lord's Day. Everyone here has multiple Bibles in their own language. We have pastors and elders opening the Word of God every Sunday. We have commentaries, we have systematic theologies, we have devotional materials, we have podcasts, we have biographies of missionaries and heroes of the faith. Okay? We live on this side of the cross. We've been benefited by generations of church fathers, reformers, Puritans, great preachers like Bunyan and Edwards and Spurgeon, great missionaries like Carey and Taylor and Livingstone. And we're all going to, imagine they seeing all that and they say, you guys are going to let that all go to waste? You're going to throw that all in the garbage because you're missing the story? Why don't we turn that into even greater blessings as we go forward? Why don't we take what we have been given and multiply it 60 or 100-fold, turn a profit on it? And so it has been my goal in these last two sermons to be crystal clear, and I hope by God's grace I have been, that not a single person here and not a single person that you know is saved because of their parents' faith. Not one person is saved because of their church affiliation. Not one person is saved because of their theological tribe or because you can name the books of the Bible in order or know the name of all 12 apostles. These are all good things that genuine Christians must press into. You must. I'm not discounting any of that. Press into it. But if those things are not accompanied by genuine conversion and true evangelical faith in the Lord Jesus, then we have misunderstood Christ just as badly as the Pharisees did. And our outcome will be just as dark as theirs. Maybe even worse, because we're actually on this side of the cross. They saw things that were about to happen. It's already happened. It's recorded. We have greater light yet than they did. It will be worse for us if we turn our back on this. And yet all of us here are the recipients of many gifts. Okay? You all have a Bible in your hand, or at least you could. And you should. You're all in a church this morning that is ministering to you through music and through prayer and through the preached word. And many of us have been taught the gospel for many years. And so rather than thinking of greater people, rejecting the greater light, being judged by lesser people with lesser light, again, I want to say, why don't we be the greater people who respond even more greatly to the greater light, to the blessing of our children and our grandchildren. What would happen? And then what if your children did the same and their children after them? And one after the other, how much could we multiply God's blessings beyond the curse that Jesus has laid out here? Let's pray. Father God, you have given us light that should be blinding to us. Lord, you have made it as obvious as could be. You have given us your word. You have given us the beauty and the light of nature. You have given us so many gifts 
Lord, that it ought to be obvious to all of us that it's not about the gifts, but about union with the giver of those gifts. Lord, I pray that if there are some here this morning that are not hearing with spiritual ears, Lord, I pray that your spirit would soften their hearts. Take out the heart of stone, even this morning, Lord, even do it right now, and replace it with the heart of flesh that sees, that humbles itself, that comes to you empty-handed for faith and for life. Lord, I pray that even for those of us who know you, that the light would shine that much brighter, that we would see what would happen if we see ourselves in the story, if we see what you are doing, if we take this greater light and multiply it rather than sin against it. Lord, help us as a church to keep this in mind as we engage with outsiders to the faith, as we think about world missions, as we think about what it is to build a healthy church family, what it is to communion with your saints. Lord, help us to not be the Pharisees. Help us to be those that have a great light that respond favorably to it. Lord, build your kingdom in and through us. Do it in this church and do it in each one's life. Lord, we ask you, knowing that you promise to be faithful to a thousand generations of those who love you. And I pray that that may be said of us. Thank you for your kindness. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And amen.
the The charge is this. Christ's ongoing conflict with the Pharisees keeps inching towards its climax. Christ refuses to turn his miracles into a circus act, and so rather than respond to the request for yet another sign, he turns and exposes their unbelief. These men are supposed to be the guardians of the scriptures, and yet they refuse to see the Christ of those scriptures. Jesus points to himself in the account of Jonah and Solomon and contrasts the high-handed unbelief of these insider Pharisees with the repentant faith of those outsider converts. So today it is for us. Christless conservatism cannot save. Trying to be mainstream in middle of the road cannot save. Imitation forms of pursuing justice cannot save. Leftist and progressive schemes for a utopia cannot save. Morality apart from the glorious gospel of grace cannot save. At the resurrection, do you want to be judged and condemned by those that you think are more wicked than you? If not, then you must hold fast to Christ. He has offered the terms of peace. He is happy to justify generational insiders and longtime outsiders. But regardless of which group you come from, he will only do it one way. He only has one people, and that one people as varied as they are by age and ethnicity and background, are those who lay down all forms of pride and presumption and self-righteousness and humbly reach out the empty hand of faith to receive all the promises of Christ. And I'll leave you with the benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it, and go in peace.